Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. This is a chapter that is often cited uh, regarding the end times. It does, I think, have um, some to do with it, maybe not as much as some people make out, but it, it does have something uh, to do with it. Um, I guess somebody to willing to read for us uh, uh, verse 1 through 32. It's kind of a longer section. Who's got a good voice tonight? Here go, James. <laughs> I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it, is, it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass meant riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more would their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch, then, as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. For if their rejection meant the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Neither then the kindness, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, 
How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Okay, let me remind you. Uh, let's kind of go run quickly through the context of the book of Romans. Paul is writing the book of Romans. In the book of Romans, he is sharing the fullest detail of the gospel anywhere in the Bible. Uh, the, the, uh, the book of Romans is all about the gospel. That's the theme. It's the gospel. This is how salvation comes. This is how... God has brought salvation. Theme verses, Romans uh, 1, uh, 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God, for it's the power of salvation to everyone who believes, to the first of the Jew and also to the Gentile. Remember? So he's talking about the gospel throughout. And he's talking about this gospel that uh, even though we're all sinners, uh, Jew and Gentile alike are sinners, no one is right before God in their own works, uh, but yet God in his grace has saved uh, some. Um, and it is not by works, but it's by grace through faith and the faith in the work of Jesus Christ. And he applies the, the completing work of Christ on, on our behalf. And so he goes on, <clears throat> chapter 8, he's looking at this, and he's talking about God's election and how it is sure and how... Nothing in all creation can separate us the love of God uh, that's in Christ Jesus. And it kind of ends it there. And it's this great, uh, great doxology almost. This great uh, filling of Paul and, and seeing what God has done for us is wonderful. And then he anticipates all, all right off the bat a question. Well, you're saying that God has promised us eternal life, but how can we really trust God? Because didn't he promise... Israel in the Old Testament? Didn't he make a covenant with them? And is he being faithful to his covenant to them? And so he goes from chapters 8, or excuse me, from chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11, chapters 9, 10, and 11, he's dealing with the issue of, of the Israelites and their relationship to God and, um, and God's covenant to them. And he's saying, no. And all that you're saying, God is faithful. Chapter 9, he, he says, you know, it's not all Israel who is Israel. It's, uh, you know, God had, God had uh, uh, taken from our, our father uh, uh, Abraham. You know, he says, it's, it's not Ishmael, but it's Isaac, the child of promise. And then he says, you know, and, and what about our, our father um, <clears throat> Jacob, who had two sons from the same mom? And they were told one uh, is not Jacob. It's um, Jacob and Esau were the sons. <laughs> Isaac, yes. Uh, and he says, 
uh, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. He says, it's always been this way. It's, it's according to God's promise that these things uh, come. And um, so he goes on through chapter 10 talking about how he, he loves Israel, wants them to be saved. And here in chapter 11, he comes back into it again. Um, and he's wanting to, he's dealing with the question, has God uh, rejected uh, his people, uh, his people that he had made covenant with in the Old Testament? And his answer is certainly in verse 1 here, by no means. And he gives two illustrations to show that God has not rejected his, his people at all. And um, so what is Paul's proof uh, of God's faithfulness uh, to his promise to Israel? What is, what's, his, uh, what's his proof in verse 1? That he himself is an Israelite. I myself am an Israelite. If God had rejected his promise to Israel, would Paul be a Christian? No. So you look at me. I myself am an Israelite. God certainly hasn't rejected his promise to Israel because I myself am an Israelite. He goes on and he, he gives a second, um, a second proof that God has not rejected his people, that he foreknew. And verse uh, uh, 2 and 3, what's, what's he saying here? Verse 2 and 3 and on through uh, verses 4. 2, 3, and 4. What's his next argument? God has saved a remnant. God has saved a remnant, and he looks into the Old Testament, right? What, what story does he tell us out of the Old Testament? Elijah. <coughs> Elijah. You think about this, Elijah, you got to think, he's got to be one of the strongest, most bold men for the Lord anywhere. And he's got this uh, contest going with the prophets of Baal uh, up on this mountain. And they, they build their altars, and he lets them go first in the morning. Whichever, whoever's God will send fire down to the altar, uh, he will be followed, right? And, um, and so he lets them go first, and they go all morning. Uh, shouting and screaming and praying to their their to Baal to do something and nothing happens and he's over there saying maybe Baal's on vacation maybe you need to shout a little louder maybe he's napping and so on and he's mocking them as it goes along their time ends and it comes his time and you remember what he does he says all right he builds the altar the way he's supposed to. He says, bring water. He digs, digs a trench around it. Dig, bring water. And they pour water over it. And the water fills up the trench around it. He soaks this altar. And he prays to God. And God sends fire down. And it consumes the altar. And burns up everything on there. And laps up the water. And as a result, uh, all the prophets of Baal are put to death up there. Well... King Ahab, the king of Israel at that time, he's married to a lovely lady named Jezebel. And when Jezebel finds out that uh, all the prophets of Baal have been killed, what does she say? Yeah, he puts price on his head. He's going to be dead. He hears this after this amazing contest where he sees God's faithfulness and God's power, and he takes off. It's just an amazing thing. I guess we're so much like that. But anyway, he takes off running, and he goes and goes and goes. And he finally gets to the place, and he sits down in depression, and uh, he says to the Lord, 
I'm, of, of all your prophets, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one who hasn't bent a knee to Baal. And um, so what does God say to him? He had 7,000. 7,000 others who have not bent the knee to Baal. What are, what are they? What would we call them? Remnant. Remnant. Throughout the Old Testament, you see at times, there are times when Israel seems to be real strong and all gung-ho for the Lord and, and following him and doing what he is calling them to do, usually depending on who their leader is. But uh, they're, they're going in the right direction. And then other times when their leader is terrible and they're not good at all, and it seems that they've all gone away from God, throughout all of his history, he keeps a remnant. There's always some of his, his people who are still following him, still right. You think about the time when uh, Babylon came. Uh, there weren't many in, in Jerusalem at that time who were following, but when Babylon comes and puts Jerusalem under siege and they, they uh, defeat them, there's still a remnant, isn't there? Daniel and his friends. And you read about it in the book of Daniel and Magog. There's always a remnant. And God has always had a remnant. And so Paul is saying here, first of all, God is not... Uh, rejected his people. I myself am a Jew. I myself am an Israelite. If God had rejected his people, I wouldn't be a Christian. And he says, God has always had a remnant. Remember in the Old Testament? Didn't always look like there was that many, but God has always had a remnant of his people. And there's a remnant still today. How much of a remnant did we see in, uh, in, in uh, the time when Paul's writing the letter to the Romans? Huh? How much? Not a whole lot, but you think <laughs> about it. What happened uh, on the day of Pentecost? Yeah. How many were saved on the day of Pentecost? 3,000. 3, That's a pretty good start for a remnant. And then you got more and more along the way. You see more and more people saved along the way. And even in Rome, Rome, which started out as a, as a, uh, a Jewish uh, church, until under Claudius, all the Jews in the, in the city were booted out. And you remember Ananias and Sapphira, not Ananias and Sapphira, um, Aquila and Priscilla, they meet Paul in uh, Corinth later. And um, they've been run out of Rome with all the other Jews because there had been this fighting among the Jews in Rome about Jesus. And um, so he kicked them all out. No more writing. No more, I don't want more Jews here, so you got to go. So they all leave, but the church doesn't leave. There's still Gentile believers in the church there. So now you've got Gentile believers uh, in the church in Rome. But even the church in Rome, it started out as predominantly Jewish. Um, the church started out as a predominantly Jewish thing. And remember in Acts, uh, Acts 15, uh, the first council of the church and what, what they were all about. What are we going to do with these Gentile believers coming in to the faith? It was predominantly Jewish. There was still a remnant at that time. The remnant at that time would have been those who had seen Jesus as their Messiah and were following him as their Messiah. Well, let's go on to the second thing here. Uh, number two here. <clears throat> How does Paul add to his argument that God... Uh, is always faithful in verses 2 through 6. I think we just described that, didn't we? Um, that he's always had a remnant and always will have a remnant. Number 3 there. Explain verse 6 and the difference between grace and works. What do we, what do we see in verse 6? 
It's by grace that God's always had a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it's no longer by works. If it were grace, if it were grace, would no longer be grace. What does he mean? What is grace? Yeah, something not deserved freely received. I think you said unmerited favor is what sometimes called not, not something you merit. If you merit it, if you work for it, it's works you're receiving it, you ought to get it. Um, <clears throat> Deuteronomy 7, 7. I remember this one. When uh, the Lord's talking to the people of Israel, telling them about why he, uh, why they're his people. Deuteronomy 7, 7, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were the most numerous uh, than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all. But, the Lord, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to his forefathers that he brought you out of the land, uh, out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Um, it's always been by grace. Even God's choosing the people and choosing Abraham uh, and uh, all of his descendants always been by grace. And so it's not by works, but it is by grace. And by God's grace, there remains still a remnant uh, to this day. This brings us on to the next several verses. And be, this says 11, but uh, 11 through 24, but we're going to. We'll have verse 7. I'm handing you out handouts that we do on Monday nights, and we spend longer than that. Okay. Remember, once again, chapters 9 through 11 dealing with God's faithfulness to his promise to Israel Paul answers the question did God reject his people he says not at all he points out that he is an Israelite and that throughout the Old Testament God secured a remnant even as he was doing in Paul's day um, the term Israel used in the context to refer to different groups this makes some of what Paul is writing here kind of difficult um, you remember um, back in chapter 9, I believe it is. <clears throat> Did I put the verse there? Uh, 9 6. It is not as though God's word failed, for uh, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. <laughs> what in the world is he talking about? Well, who, uh, who are descended from Israel who are not Israel? Who would they be? Well, I don't like to say that. But they're descended from Abraham. They're descended from Isaac. They're descended from Jacob. So they would still say, I'm a, Abraham's my father. Well, the Israel people are not Christians. Right. So he's saying that, that simply because you're... Jews. Yeah, simply because you're Jewish, simply because you are from the lineage of Abraham and you can call Abraham your father doesn't necessarily, in God's sight, mean that the covenant is with you, right? Um, he's going to go on in this same chapter and say, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Same father. 
Okay, so, um, so he's talking here, he, he makes a distinction here between what we might say is ethnic Israel, those who can trace their heritage to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, say, our fathers, that's my lineage. Never has anyone in my great-grandparents married anyone but a Jewish person. We've all we've got a pure Jewish line going here. And yet, and yet they are not part of the people of God. They're not the true Israel, as he would call here. And I think what we might call the true Israel, especially as you look in the Old Testament, and the term that Paul uses here in chapter 11, we might call them the remnant, right? Remnant, those who are truly still following the Lord. And uh, in the remnant, in this case, would be those who have understood that the Old Testament was looking forward to a Messiah to come, and that Messiah had come, and that the Messiah was Jesus. And so... <clears throat> Joseph, children was not Israelite, just as his name was the people. He had an Egyptian. Yeah, he, he did. And they, they became tribes, and... Uh, had uh, had their own land, uh, Manasseh, Ephraim, and Manasseh. There are also names within the 144,000 too, and Daniel's not mentioned in the 144,000. Yeah, there, there's reasoning for that. Um, maybe we can get to that when we get to Revelation. But uh, <clears throat> uh, in verses seven through ten. Especially with this thought that um, Paul is talking about Israel and he makes a distinction between ethnic Israel and true Israel, right? Who's he talking about in verses 7 through 10? What then? Uh, uh, what then? What Israel sought so earnestly it did not obtain, but the elect did, and the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them to a spirit of stupor. Eyes so that they could not see, and ears so that they could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their uh, table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and a retribution to them. May their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. What's he, what's he talking about here? So he's contrasting Israel with the elect. Okay. Making a distinction between the Israel he's talking about and the elect. Okay, and and the and the true Israel, right? Yeah, and you can kind of see this. He's he's saying that God has put a spirit of stupor on there, and they're not understanding. You remember in Matthew uh, chapter thirteen, um, Matthew thirteen ten through fifteen. Let me read this to you. The disciples came to him and asked, "Why do you speak to the people in parables?" And he replied, "The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them." Hmm. The knowledge of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever will be, whoever has will be given more, and he will have in abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart are calloused, has become calloused. Uh, they hardly hear with their ears, and they close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. 
Yeah, yeah. So it's an interesting thing here. He, he says, Jesus is speaking in parables, and his disciples say, Why are you speaking in parables? And we might say, Well, a parable makes things clearer. You know, you're, you're illustrating the point you're making. Sometimes it doesn't. And I found this out. Sometimes I, I do an illustration, and I'm thinking, This perfectly illustrates it. Everybody will see it. And they go off in the illustration and miss the point altogether. Um, and it seems that maybe some of this Jesus was doing with parables and the disciples say, not everybody's getting it. And he says, they're not supposed to. That's the reason I'm speaking in parables to them because they're not supposed to get it. Right? And so it seems that here in Romans chapter 11, he's talking about a certain uh, ethnic Israel who were not elect. And God has spent, sent to them a spirit of stupor. God is not revealing and opening the truth to them so that they would see and understand. There is a group there that that is happening to even at this very time. Yes, the Holy Spirit comes in to, to make them, but God has to be the one to send the Holy Spirit to do that, and he's not doing it. In fact, instead of sending the Holy Spirit to illumine their minds, he's blocking them from seeing the truth. And so then he goes on here in Romans 11, and he begins talking about uh, uh, Israel again. And uh, so with, with this being the case, that God spent, sent them a spirit of stupor so that they couldn't see, they couldn't hear, they couldn't understand to this very day. He's, he's, there's like a veil over their eyes for so many of them who have not turned to the Messiah that he sent to them. Um, and he, he goes on, well, then is there any hope for Israel at all? And that's where we pick it up in verse 11. What does he say? I ask, uh, uh, again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? How does he respond? No, Certainly not. not. Can Israel recover from this situation that they're in where the majority of them have not accepted the Messiah that Jesus has sent for them? Have they stumbled so far that they have fallen and can't get up? And he says, nope, not at all. And now he's going to go on and explain this. Not at all, rather, uh, this, is, this is an interesting thing, he says. Um, let's go down to verse 3, because we're going to look at a number of different things here. Because he's going to kind of explain some of uh, what's going on with Israel and why it's going on with Israel at this time. Maybe something that you, you haven't noticed here before. Um, Verse 11, again, I, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Um, why have they stumbled at this part? Because the Jews want to go to the Gentiles. Yeah, so now it goes to the Gentiles. Now, I put some other passages here, <clears throat> specifically... Um, in Acts 13, let's read this to you, let's get to it quickly. Acts 13, 46, <clears throat> Paul and Barnabas off on a missionary journey, and they've been presenting the gospel. They go, you know, first of all, to the synagogues everywhere they go, and they uh, <clears throat> are getting 
first of all, the, when they first go in, like the first Sabbath, they're, they're pretty well accepted. And then the people hear about it and the, those who don't like the, this at all, they show up the next uh, Sabbath and kind of turn them away. Uh, and so in Acts 13, 46, then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. Well, let me go back up to verse 44 and see what was going on. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw that the crowds saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against Paul, uh, against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, "We had to speak the word of God to you first, since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles." As Paul say in Romans, this. Has, has happened because of the Jewish rejection. The gospel's gone to the Gentiles. This is exactly what Paul and Barnabas are doing here in the um, uh, in in the gospel mission uh, ministry. In Matthew twenty two, um, Jesus is telling a parable. Matthew twenty two, first ten verses. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, "The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven." Is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent uh, his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said to those, and said, Tell those who have been invited that I prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field and uh, another to his field. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burnt their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants gathered the people uh, they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. What's happening? Jesus is saying, it's a wedding feast. Got it prepared for you. And they rejected it. The son has come. And they rejected him. And since they have rejected him, what's he do? Turns to others. They weren't the first invited, but now there are others invited. First to the Jew, but also to the Gentile. Right? And so we see it happening in Jesus' words in the in this parable on the wedding feast, we see it also happening in action in Acts where uh, Paul and Barnabas are doing that and uh, talking to the Jews first and said, we had to present it to you first, but since you rejected it, now we go to the Gentile. And so we see what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 11. First of all, they, th this happened so that salvation would come to the Gentiles. Okay. What good uh, comes, so from Israel stumbling in verse 11, salvation comes to the Gentiles. What good comes from Israel's rejection in verse 15? For if their rejection is reconciliation of the world. Life from death. Life from death. And their rejection means reconciliation of the world. Right? Gentiles coming in. Verse 17, if some of the branches have been broken off, what branches have been broken off? Jews, right? Some of the some of the uh, natural uh, uh, branches from this tree they've been broken off. What benefit comes from them being broken off? If some of these branches have been broken off, uh, and you, 
though a wild olive shoot had been grafted in among the others, what's the benefit? Gentiles, the wild olive branches have been grafted in. Why? Because the Jews rejected been they have been broken off. Okay? What good comes from, uh, let's see, that was verse 17. We've got to flip over. What good comes from the hardening of Israel in verse 25? I do not want you to be uh, ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that uh, you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Why, is, why are they hardened in part? So the, so, the Gentiles. so the full number of the Gentiles come in. You see, he said this several times, hasn't he? What was the first, the first one there? Uh, Israel's uh, stumbling so that, the, uh, so that salvation can come to the Gentiles. Uh, Israel's rejection, verse 15, so that uh, reconciliation can come to the world. Uh, Israel's being broken off, natural branches being broken off so that the wild olive shoots can be grafted in. Uh, what good comes from the hardening of Israel, uh, verse 25, so that reconciliation uh, can come to the Gentiles and the full number of the Gentiles may come in. Verse 30, he goes on once again, of this whole idea of what's going on with Israel and why. Verse 30, just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. You used to be disobedient, but now you've received God's mercy. Why? Because of their disobedience. You see what's happening here? He said it several times. And, and now, in each case, th this because of Israel's stumbling, because of Israel's uh, rejection because of Israel being broken off, because of Israel being hardened, because of the disobedience to Israel, it has become a benefit to the Gentiles. Because now, as, as Paul in Acts 13, he turns and says, he said, we had to bring it to you first, but now, turns to the Gentiles, we'll give it to you. And so, it's uh, Jesus sending out his messengers and saying, I, you weren't originally invited to the party, but now you are. Come on. And now, it, it's kind of a pendulum here, it's swinging. And now, look at what happens in each case. Uh, what is the final outcome for Israel in each of these things? Look in verse 12. They've been made envious in verse 11, but if their transgression means riches for the world, their loss means riches for uh, the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? Okay. Because of their, uh, their stumbling brings in the Gentiles. But when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, what, what about for uh, Jews here? What about for Israel? He's saying, using word, their, their fullness. How much greater riches will their fullness bring? Uh, verse 15. Again, Israel rejected. Bringing in the Gentiles makes them uh, envious in what happens. But if their rejection is reconciliation of the world, reconciliation for the Gentiles, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? See, they're envious, and now they see that, yes, he was my Messiah. And they receive it again, and it's life from the dead. Um, verse uh, 23, and he's talking about the being uh, broken off. 
and the wild olive branches grafted in. He says, and if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted back, grafted back in. Okay. Um, verse 26, after, um, after they've got the experience, they're hardening. Verse 26, uh, and so uh, all Israel will be saved. They're hardened for a, 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 a time. We're going to look at that in just a minute. but um, And in part, but once the fullness of the Gentiles come in, then all Israel can be saved. Verse 31, um, once again, uh, dealing with their disobedience. So they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now Receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. Do you see the, the, the pendulum here? You, 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 uh, Jewish, you Israelites, you rejected it, so God brought in the Gentiles. It's going to move you to envy, and since all the Gentiles have come in now, to swing back to the Jews. Right? Seems to be. Pretty clear, I mean, because he goes over it several times with the same sort of thing going on here. So it seems to me that that is exactly what he's saying. Now, we still need to understand a little bit more um, about this, and we'll, I will have to get to more detail on this next week. But uh, I want us to go through the rest of this. In verses uh, 13 through 24, Paul is warning Gentile Christians not to be arrogant over Israel. Why might Gentile Christians be arrogant? Over Israel. He chose us over you. <laughs> yeah, he, he's rejected you. He's rejected you. He's put the hardening on you, and now he's accepted us. So look at us, right? And also, um, the, the fact that uh, we have our own apostle. God gave us our own apostle. Just for us, right? Um that might make them feel a little bit arrogant too. God's done something really special for us because you guys rejected him. And we can look down on you now. You used to look down on us. But, but Paul seems to squelch this attitude. How does he do it in verses 13 through 15? Because he, he, he's real specific here. And he's, uh, this attitude that Jews or Gentiles might have is some sort of, some way superior and arrogant over the Jews or the Israelites. He says, I'm talking to you Gentiles. And as much as I'm an apostle to Gentiles and I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and to save some of them. For if their re reconciliation is, for if their rejection is reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole branch is holy. If the root is holy, uh, so are the branches. Um, what's, what's Paul saying? They're the first fruits. Because you're a Jew. Huh? Because you're a Gentile, they don't give you the. You can put it a different way in the race perspective. Right. Right. He's trying to tell the Jews, 
and that is true, but he's also saying quite specifically here, you can't be anti-Semitic. You can't look down upon the Jews, say, just because they've rejected, uh, rejected God. We've seen a lot of that in, in the world, especially part of World War II, and all the issues that came on with that. That was a terrible thing. And, and no Christian should have been able to participate in that by virtue of uh, thinking I'm a Christian and they rejected Christ and the things I'm talking like the Christ killers and stuff like that. Um, what is the olive tree uh, symbolica in, in verses 17 through 24? Christ. Okay, I think that's probably pretty close. And the Jewish, we're thinking of the Jewish people, particularly in this sense, as the true Jews who are all part of the family of God, right? Because he's able to break some off and graft others in. And so the broken off branches, the broken off branches would be symbolic of the Jews. Not the whole nation, though but those who were rejecting the Messiah. So they would be the ones broken off. What's, what are the wild olive branches grafted in? Gentiles. Gentiles, right. Now he also talks about, so, so we see the, the, the tree, and we talked about the branches, the wild and the natural branches, but what about the root? What's the root symbolic of? I, I used to think that, and I think some people would say that. I think, especially in the context here, he seems to be saying this root would be the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the ones for whom the um, the ones for whom the uh, the covenant was given, and the people of God are uh, come from this line. Now, it used to be. Almost exclusively, not completely exclusively, uh, from the Jewish people. But now, it's not. There are these branches are broken off, and new ones are being uh, grafted in. And so it seems to me the roots that he's talking about here would be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, <clears throat> so there's only how many olive trees are there? There's just one, right? He's only talking about one olive tree. That's really the tree representing the people of God. Only one olive tree. And right, but you you receive yeah, but you receive the promises. You're getting the promises of being the the covenant promises of being included in in the family and the family of God. So. I think that especially in his context here, especially with him saying, you, you, can't, be, you can't be arrogant over them. Especially when you think about it, that you are grafted into this one tree, and this tree is the family of God that has, in a sense, because of the covenant, its roots, um, and... Uh, and uh, in the patriarchs. And so um, you are not, and he talks about the, the nourishing sap uh, 
uh, from the olive, comes from the olive root. And so he's saying, you know, your being placed in this is placed in the family of God. Now, I, I want you to see that, that, that and I think maybe with this last part here, this idea of the tree and the roots being uh, the, the patriarchs, and we're receiving, because we're receiving um, the, uh, the promises of God and the being part of the family of God as being a result of being included in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see it in Galatians 3. If you want to turn to Galatians 3 with me. We're going to see in Ephesians 2 as well, but in Galatians 3, 26 through 29, you are all sons of God through your faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Um, Ephesians, the other way. Ephesians chapter 2, starting verse 11, and read through to, to the end there. So, in other words, Galatians chapter 3 here is saying, you know who the true children of Abraham are? Those who have faith in Christ. They've been grafted into that family. Right? And so there's, there's, in this family, this family of God, family of God that in some sense will trace its roots from uh, Abraham because God does this amazing work in making the covenant with Abraham back in Genesis uh, 12, 15, 17 um, <clears throat> that that, uh, that truly is you, you find your uh, being a part of the, of the family of God um, because of the promises made to him in the, in the covenant that's there. And so you're in this one tree. And Galatians says, you know what, if you belong to, if you believe in Jesus, you're that same family. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. And I know that not too many of you have this translation. That's okay. But I want you to, to hear the way it starts off. It says, Remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and were called uncircumcision by those who called themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in this world. What were you? You were separated from citizenship, right? You are not part of this family. You are not part of this nation. Uh, you were separated from the citizenship of Israel. And you were foreigners to the covenants of the, of the promise without hope and without God in this world. But now, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. Okay, so now he's using another metaphor. It's not a tree, it's a man, right? Uh, he's using the citizenship 
uh, you're, um, you, you were separated from that citizenship. But now his idea in Christ Jesus, he's brought you near. He's making one new man. Uh, verse 16, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners or aliens. We were. We were not citizens. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners or aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God uh, lives by his spirit. So in Ephesians, saying, you didn't, you used to be foreigners and aliens. You were not part of the citizenship here. But he ends it by saying, because of Christ Jesus, and what Christ Jesus has done, he came and made you one together with him. And now you are fellow citizens in that same family. Paul, in talking about the tree here, he's certainly talking about us as Gentiles not being arrogant. But he is saying we're part of that same tree. Why do you want to be arrogant against your brothers and sisters and those in your family? Saying you're so much better. You, you can't do that. You're part of the same family here. I think this is an important thing uh, for us as we um, look at, at into our uh, eschatology, our view of end times. Next week we're going to go on with just one more aspect of, of this in Romans uh, chapter 11. And because I do think, as we saw here, um, it, 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 Paul, Paul seems to be saying, the pendulum swung, Israel rejected, God brought in the Gentiles, but because of this, the, the Jews are coming, or the Israelites are coming back in. It seems to me to be saying that. And we'll look more at that and what that means uh, next week when we get together. All right? Okay.